Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. This is arguably the most interesting economic interview in the history of Bloomberg surveillance, Bloomberg on the economy, including the work uh, that we've done with Bloomberg News over the years. These two have battled with many battles over the years, and today they sit collegially looking forward to American economics. From Harvard University, and from Columbia University, Joseph Stiglitz. It is a changed world from when you two went at it decades ago. Let me first go to you, Professor Rogoff. What do you need to observe from the Trump cabinet and those within this new administration to soften the rhetoric of our new president? I don't even know how to say that. I mean, we have, <laughs> want to see that he listens to them. I mean, I think he has appointed some adults, you know, in the cabinet, the secretary of state, the secretary of defense. But, you know, is he someone who's going to listen to them? Is his behavior going to be erratic? I, not so much looking at the policies as the whole temperament. Do they look like, you know, they're going to be a, a, a rational administration? You have been a harsh critic of conservative economics and of the politics and the rhetoric of the president-elect. Not what you want to see from the administration. How should Democrats, progressives in a liberal world respond to the Trump presidency? I think they have to stand together and say this is not normal. Uh, it is not normal uh, in the United States where we've been combating uh, racism, bigotry, misogyny for decades to have a president who so openly expresses those kinds of views. Uh, and in many ways, that's the number one issue. Uh, I just want to say I strongly agree with that. Uh, it's also a, a very big issue to me is the rule of law, including the international rule of law. Uh, if you want uh, there are more companies to invest in the United States, uh, you change the tax law, you change uh, uh, the regulatory system. I might disagree about how you do that, but you don't go after individual comp uh, companies. That's, that's uh, smacks of authoritarianism, fascism. But Professor Stiglitz, this is not normal, but he was elected on a democratic platform, and he was elected. What He had a minority world... of votes. Let me... Right. Make but it clear. That, but this is he does not have system. legitimacy of a, and and there was interference from Russia, right. but he was but elected in that he way. He was and elected. What will the world look like in four years? Uh, let, let's be clear. We don't know because uh, there is a very big. You know, we know what he said. I think we have to take treat seriously what he said, right. as if and if he does. Anything like what he has said and anything like some of his economic advisors who are very strong protectionists, 
we will see okay. a very different world. Professor Stiglitz, I know what you're going to say, and you say the dreaded F word, fascism. We heard Bill Gross uh, a week ago or so talk about Mussolini industrial policy of Italy. Ken Rogoff, are there tilts towards that? Is there a zero-sum attitude here that signals a changed America where there has to be a global response to Trump economics? Is this fascism light? Well, I think as President Obama said, we need to give him a chance. Um, we want him to do well. The whole world wants him to do well. So I, I don't think we have, want to have a reaction, you know, before he's actually out of policy. But if we're talking about the threats to institutions, I'd start with the Fed. Um, okay, uh, simply there are a couple vacancies. There are probably a couple other governors who might step down, and then fi uh, certainly Fisher and Yellen are probably likely to leave. He's going to get to appoint the Fed. But more importantly, will he respect their independence? Uh, there are lots of ways Congress can bring pressure to bear. The president can. Look at what Nixon did to Arthur Burns. That's why we had the great inflation of the 70s. I see the Trump presidency is actually having strong growth the first couple of years, partly inertia, partly deregulation, partly stimulus. But after that, it could be high inflation, a classic uh, fiscal mess. Right. But if you, if so, let's spend one minute on the Fed. Does Donald Trump really want higher rates, which is what he's been asking for in tweets? If you're in charge, oh, how can you want higher I mean, no way. He's in the construction industry. Joe, I was going to say, you know, this is a good example of the mystery of Trump because he said something during the election that, as Ken said, is totally the opposite of what anybody in the construction industry normally believes. And he wants a boost to the economy, right. and high interest rates will be even worse for the dollar in terms of a high exchange rate that he's worried about. In the time that we have left with you, with this historic moment with the two of you together, let me start with you, Professor Stiglitz. We need an international advocacy now. Can the IMF be that institution with Madame Lagarde, after Madame Lagarde, someone like Raghurajan running the new IMF? Who knows? But what would you like to see out of our international institutions, particularly the IMF? Well, I, I uh, hope and I assume that they will be a very strong advocate of the international rule of law, that there are certain rules that we have agreed upon and the way the international system works. Uh, the WTO is particularly important because the area where he has been most explicit in threatening the international rule of law is a unilateral kind of protectionism. Uh, and so we need a voice to say this is not the direction to go. And then there will be cases brought if he actually goes and does those things. Uh, and uh, we ought, there we ought to be support for right. for what they adjudicate. I guess the, the problem is that a lot of these organizations, um, Professor Rogoff, are considered elitist, or they're, they're considered to go to the ones that have enjoyed all the benefits of globalization. Is it not the markets that, at the end of the day, will really be the president's checks and balance? Well, of course, but I just speaking of the IMF, I mean, I do think Christine Lagarde's been very sensitive to inequality and these issues, which are, you know, really not so obviously within the IMF's remit. But at the end of the day, this is a political issue. It's a technocratic institution. Professor Rogoff, your great phrase, which I stole for, the, for my book title years ago, flying on one engine. We're now, without question, we're flying on one engine now, at least within our, our political economics. How do these international organizations assist a new world order, given the turmoil within America? 
Well, I think they could be challenged very quickly with problems in emerging markets. If U.S. interest rates rise, we live in a world where, by many measures, the dollar is more influential than ever. There'll be capital outflows. We could see problems uh, even in the context of a growing U.S. and Europe. But Professor Stiglitz, is this about inequality? I had a pretty spirited uh, session with Madame Lagarde, Ray Dalio, and Larry Summers, and a lot of people on the panel were saying that actually this is not populism isn't fed from inequality; it's fed from people feeling left out, that they're not being taken care of, and this goes back to taking control back, which could be immigration, actually. Uh, I think. Uh at the bottom, a lot of this is the fact that, say, in the United States, the bottom 90 percent have had stagnant incomes for a quarter century. If their incomes have been growing, they would be more accepting of immigration. They, they would be, you know, their attitudes towards these changes would be totally different. So the fact is, yes, things are out of their control, but not only are they out of the control, they've been going in the wrong the, direction. The distinctive difference of your two economics, I would respectfully suggest, is, Joe, you're taking a more broader view. And I would say, Ken, you have more of a rigor within your analysis. Coalesce those two views right now. The economic advice this president's going to get, what flavor of advice does it need, need to be? Does it need to be broader stiglitz or the rigor? Let, let me just off? say, we're both so much closer to reality than what he might get. That uh, it wouldn't matter. <laughs> it wouldn't matter. Yeah. Would you accept a job as governor of the Fed, Professor Stiglitz? Uh, uh, I, get, I think the answer is yes. And I think it's very important for anybody who is willing to, you know, say, I'm not going to be, you know, the Fed has a kind of independence. Uh, if I got appointed, yeah. I would exercise that. Yeah. And if he tries to fire me, that's that's life. I, 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 <laughs> yeah, uh, can I? In very, I'm, it's unfair because you have very little time. But how do you redefine globalization to include more Good people question. in it? Good question, Professor Stiglitz. Uh, well, you know, what we have to understand is that globalization has represented a fundamental change of many of the rules of the game in ways that have disadvantaged large groups of our population. Think mm -hmm. about that way. So what we have to do is rewrite those rules in ways that undo, undo some of that. So, for instance, one example is uh, workers in the United States are threatened by uh, their bargaining power is weaker. What we've done simultaneously is weaken unions and weaken their bargaining power in the workplace. If we, instead of weakening it further, said, let's try to help them unionize, you know, it won't fully undo the force of of globalization, but at least it gives them a little bit more sense of control. Professor, over let, let, let me just point to the work of another Nobel Prize winner, uh, other than Stiglitz, uh, <laughs> who is here at the forum, Angus Deaton, yes. who's written that you know you have to be careful when you're talking about inequality because if you think of the whole world, this has arguably been the best 30 years in history. This is a question of you know how do you treat people within borders versus across borders, and I will say the tax cut is really hard hard for me to understand if we're trying to address inequality. Professor Rogoff, Professor Stiglitz, this has been wonderful for us. This is in you know, the decades we've been here. This has been a, a great, great uh, moment as well.
Nora Rubini is with us from New York University. I was talking to our executive producer, Rachel Worsban, about a conversation with Rubini in 2005 or 2006 at the acclaimed Belvedere Hotel here, where <laughs> Professor Rubini and I laid out the financial crisis of the next 36 months. It wasn't that easy uh, back then, Noriel. But what we got wrong and what you've mentioned in your book and uh, throughout this crisis, we get the amplitude wrong. We get the scope, the size of these moves wrong, all of us. What are we getting wrong right now about the amplitudes we will see under President Trump? Well, the markets are happy since the election because, of course, there's going to be fiscal stimulus, going to increase growth in the short run, is cutting taxes mostly for the rich, capital gains, income taxes, corporate taxes, estate taxes, going to slash all sorts of regulation. I think the risks that are underpriced by the market is that the fiscal stimulus has already led the signal of it to a rise in long rates, doubling of 10 year and a sharp rise of the U.S. dollar. Uh, Donald Trump says he has saved 1,000 jobs in Indiana carrier, but the appreciation of the dollar based on the Fed model is going to lead over the next year and a half to 400,000 jobs lost in manufacturing. And if the dollar is going to strengthen further and longer it's going higher because the fiscal stimulus is excessive in an economy that is close to full employment, forcing the Fed to tighten faster and sooner, stronger dollar, higher interest rates are going to crowd out the recovery, going to damage economic growth. So paradoxically, supply side trickle down instead of helping the white working class that voted them in is going to force them to become very protectionist and even right. more so against trade globalization and migration. So you have inconsistency between trickle down on one side and protectionism on the other but, side. Noel, this is basically a working assumption of what we've seen in policies. How did we miss this? We were, in the, you know, I've been here 72 hours and all I keep on thinking is, are we missing something? Because 12 months ago, we completely missed Brexit. We completely missed Donald Trump. Are we looking at things wrong? Well, often the, what's, uh, the conventional wisdom in Davos is a contrarian indicator. In 2006 and 7, it was predicting a global financial crisis. It was. People were thinking it was a lunatic last year, by the way. There was the panic about China, January, February. Everybody was asking me, are we back to 2008? I said, no, it's not going to be back to 2008. It's going to be a temporary phenomenon. But at that time, nobody predicted Brexit. Nobody predicted Trump. Nobody predicted that rents is losing Italy. And there's this massive backlash, populist against globalization, because here we have, of course, the top 1% elites who are not in touch with what's going on in the rest of the world. So how big do you think the wave of populism will be? How Will it reach France? Will it even reach, if not Italy, the Netherlands, and possibly touch Germany? I think it's going to increase throughout the world. First of all, in Europe, there is a meaningful chance that Le Pen might win in France. I think the polls are wrong. There is a stigma to say that you're voting for uh, Le Pen because her father is a neo-Nazi, she was a neo-fascist herself. So the same way in which there was stigma to say I'm voting for Brexit, for Trump, or against Renzi, I think the polls in France are wrong. Mm -hmm. Secondly, Filon is a Thatcherite neoliberalist in a country where essentially the economic policies are all populist, and even Le Pen is having an agenda that is actually appealing to the left, to socialists and communists. So in a second round, there is Filon against Le Pen, many on the left might decide to vote for Le Pen. And if she's elected, this is the end of Europe and the Eurozone. is a risk. You in Italy, when there'll be election, Cinque Stelle is committed to come to power and have a referendum on the Euro. Those are important risks. You mentioned neo-fascism with Ms. Le Pen. Yeah. Does Mr. Trump have elements of neo-fascism to his discourse? 
Well, leaving aside, you know, is bashing the press and also other things, Ned Phelps, who's professor of economics at Columbia, Nobel Prize winner, mm -hmm. free market supporter, he said that he's bashing of businesses. He's telling businesses where they should be producing, located and so on, reminds him of the corporatism that was in Nazi Germany and in fascist Italy. Right. We are not yet there, but this trying to right. micromanage economic well, activity and going against market is a paradox. Yesterday, President Xi Jinping, who's nominally the leader of a communist country, has said, right. I'm in favor of free trade and globalization, while the leader of the biggest capitalist country in the world, Donald Trump, is saying right. things that are against capitalism. That's a paradox. Noriel, each front-rate economist has a different style, a different cadence. You have been one of our greats at hinging old-world analysis with a new world of America. But after what you've seen in the last 12 months, is America becoming part of an old-world mentality? Well, it's becoming in the sense that, uh, unfortunately, globalization has winners and losers, and we've forgotten that the losers are many, not just uh, white blue collars, but also increasingly white collar workers are displaced by trade, migration, and globalization. And the policies of the last 10, 20 years have not dealt with those who are losing from globalization. And Trump, even if he's a silver spoon born billionaire, has come to rally for these people. Even if his economic policies, frankly, on taxation, on regulation, on labor, are not going to help the white working class that voted for him. Therefore, he's going to have to give them some red meat. What's going to be red meat? Mm -hmm. Bashing migration, building a wall, and becoming very protectionist. But that's not going to help the working class. Right, but so on the paradox, right? Yeah. So, the, you know, bashing and building walls and the U.S. becoming more inward-looking, whilst China trying to save globalization yeah. in, in certain aspects, yeah. does it automatically paradox lead to conflicts between the two nations? Well, it certainly can lead to trade tensions and uh, tensions currency or tensions. Wars? Uh, well, you know, eventually tensions can lead also to wars. Uh, China could be accused of being a currency manipulator. It might try to slap tariffs against China, and that eventually could lead to retaliation in many and different ways. And then there's the political dimension. Statesmen have been done by Trump and his surrogates about Taiwan, mm -hmm. about the South China Sea, about Korea, may lead actually to build up of military tensions as well. Mr. Trump's lead advisor on this, Peter Navarro of UKIL Irvine, has a tone about China, which it's about them. It was reverential here yesterday for President Xi as well. What tone would you advise for the Trump administration, given Trump's domestic politics, and yet they have to project to China? How should they project? Well, whenever there's an outsider is running for the presidency, whether it was Ronald Reagan or Bill Clinton or W. Bush, uh, before the election, they bash China, say no democracy, no human rights, unfair trade, dumping, you name it, currency manipulation. Once they come to power, they realize you cannot bully China. It's the second largest economy in the world. Soon enough, it's going to be the first largest. It's a major political and geopolitical power, and you have to engage China. The idea you're going to bully China, I don't think is consistent. So either they understand that and they start to have a constructive dialogue with China, there are plenty of things you can sell about China to opening up to trade, to foreign direct investment, fair trade, you name it. Or if you're going to challenge China on the economic or trading or side in an aggressive way, then there's going to be conflict. All right. But so we've, we've been, what, 10 minutes talking about risk and possible conflicts. Why are the markets up? Are they due a big correction because they're in la-la-la? 
Poland? Well, the markets went up after the election because, one, you'll have a fiscal stimulus that's going to boost growth in the short run. Secondly, the tax cuts are all going to go to the corporates and the wealthy. There is income taxes, corporate taxes, estate taxes, public gains taxes. And it's going to slash regulation on environment, on trade, on uh, financial sector, on pharma, on you name it, on labor. And therefore, the market's yeah. going up. I think the markets are underpricing that this fiscal stimulus, if it's excessive, is going to lead to a tightening of financial condition, longer rates in the dollar. It's going to lead then to trade wars and protection is going to damage growth and the economy right. and therefore so the market down the line. So a huge correction that you're expecting? I expect that over time there'll be a huge correction, yes, over time. All right, Nouriel Roubini on particularly good form, I think. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of Global Connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. Before we bring in Robert Schiller, Tom, let me steal one of your favorite words and ask you about the zeitgeist uh, in Davos. Well, so what, what are you feeling today on the second day of the World Economic Forum's annual meeting? Very different than the first day. It is always true that this, these meetings shift, and I would shift from the certitude of everyone speaking of populism to the reality, David Gura, of uncertainty, and something I've never thought of before, folks, and that is the uncertainty of the uncertainty. Uh -huh. I'm not quite sure mathematically <laughs> what that means, but that is the feeling up here, conversation to conversation. The other thing on a re real basis, David, is yesterday was completely dwarfed by the speech by the president of China in, in London, the prime minister uh, of the United Kingdom. And today is a much more normal day of sharp discourse. Francine Lacroix's panel early this morning, David Gura, was on fire. An animated Lawrence Larry Summers. Summers. Yeah, Larry Summers was fired up. Uh, before you bring in our next guest, let me read a tweet from him. Robert Schuller tweeting this morning, Most interesting thing so far at Davos, Patrick Brown, I believe a Stanford biochemist, speaks on coming veggie synthetic meat. We'll all be vegetarians because uh, it's cheaper. Yeah. There's, there's a lot on the menu, as it were, there uh, in Davos. Well, there are two or three different Davos, but David, I would suggest the panel I looked at was Living to 100, which was a panel they had. I'm not sure I want to get <laughs> to 100, good, but good. there was some panel about getting out there. He is not 100, but he is aged in the world of I've seen it all <laughs> in economics. Laureate from Yale University, uh, Robert Schiller. It's wonderful to have you. I know David Gurro's got a bunch of questions questions for you as well. Describe uncertainty for our audience worldwide. Everybody learns it in Econ 101. Carl Case at Wellesley taught it for years, the late Carl Case. What is uncertainty? Well, the traditional definition was given by Frank Knight, a University of Chicago professor, in a book called uh, Risk and Uncertainty, I think. Risk, he said, is measurable probabilities. Where, you know, flipping a coin is 50-50 chance. You know it's 50-50 chance. Uncertainty is in, you don't even know what's being tossed. Yeah, I couldn't possibly come up with a probability number. But I, I think uncertainty maybe has slightly different meaning now than Frank Knight's. Uh, I think m maybe it's, uh, it's the pervasiveness of, of the, uh, the new Trump administration and the Brexit action uh, bring up, it's sort of Knightian uncertainty, but it's also just a sense right. that the, the, the whole world is changing. 
even up the valley, we have a jargon alert. Robert Schiller folks talking about Frank Knight in the classic paper, David Gura, of 1921. Uh-huh. And when you hear Greenspan or Schiller speak of Knightian, K-N-I-G-H, Knightian uncertainty, there's a certain character and heritage to that from another time and place. David? Robert Schiller, uh, give us a, a sense here of how much of the focus at Davos, how much of the focus at the annual meeting is on Trumponomics, on defining what it is, on, on getting a sense uh, of what it's going to consist of once he's inaugurated on Friday. Well, it's always amazed me how much attention Donald Trump gets. Uh, it, it shows to me the power of narratives, the power of showmanship. He honed this on his TV show, The Apprentice, and he's gotten expert at it. He's a, he's a master storyteller, and it, he's gotten the whole world looking at it. We, we were talking about uncertainty a, a moment ago, nighty and uncertainty. How much of it is there, and what are you looking for? When, you, when you're looking for clarity, when you're looking for a better sense of what Trumponomics is and what it's going to mean, uh, what's going to provide those answers to you? See, an example of real Knightian uncertainty is the, the uncertainty generated by Trump's tweets about nuclear power, nuclear weapons. Uh, and he has suggested that we are now entering a new nuclear arms race with other countries, that because he wants to talk tough about our nuclear arsenal, other countries are going to be deciding that they have to build them too. That is real uncertainty. What, where does that bring us? Now, it may be that he's wise and knows that it's just cheap talk. Nothing will happen from saying these things. But, I, you know, I, I think we're, many of us worried that it isn't cheap talk and it has, brings real and fundamental uncertainty to our lives. Is there an, an upside, a potential upside to all this talk, whether cheap or, or otherwise? Is it good that we're having more communication about policy issues, that less is, is uncertain because more is spoken of? Well, I think it's refreshing at times to hear Donald Trump question some of our basic assumptions. Well, for example, should we demonize Russia? Uh, I'm thinking that maybe we should be wary of the current regime in mm-hmm. Russia. And he's right. Let's not demonize the country or the people. They're nice people. I can tell you. <laughs> I've met many nice Russians. But, uh, so he turns the talk around in ways that were kind of unacceptable. And sometimes it's a good thing, I think. Is it a Gilded Age, Professor Schiller? We had, I was shocked this morning in our early hours of Bloomberg surveillance how many times people spoke of a neo-fascism in the industrial policy of Mussolini in the 1920s. That's an emotion from another time and place. Can we drag forward that this is just simply a plutocracy and a time of a Gilded Age? Well, Mussolini, was he rich? I, I don't think so. Was I don't believe he was, no. So it, it's... Uh... It's an unusual Trump is a, Trump is an unusual combination of a a gifted rabble rouser and a billionaire. So uh, I wouldn't call it a plutocracy, uh, although that that's an element of it. It's it's his, you know, some people discover their their selves in front of an audience. Mm. You know, you start you start observing and you observing the audience and noting what works, and it becomes a passion doing that. That's why uh, Trump isn't int- hasn't been interested in getting briefings. It's not what he does, right? He he's he's a speaker, an action figure. You, you, we, we've been talking about history here a little bit, looking back to the 1920s and, and 1930s. What's what's useful to you when you're looking at history now? What are you reading? What are you looking at? Are you, are there analogs here in American history for what we're seeing today? Absolutely. I, I I just gave my American Economic Association presidential address called Narrative Economics. And I've been back in the 20s and 30s 
trying to understand the narratives of that day. And people forget what was on people's minds then. For, so for example, this uh, is a factor about uncertainty. Back in the 1930s, Mexico, the Mexican government, nationalized the oil fields mm. uh, and the haciendas. Uh, it was a major step. And at the same time, there were people talking about that in the U.S. And, and Franklin Delano Roosevelt seemed to be, our president, seemed to be drifting more to the mm -hmm. left over the years of his administration. And we came into a period where many business people said in the 1930s, we're not expanding because of uncertainty. And I think we have this. Now, right now, Trump offers inspiration and uncertainty at the same well, time. As you gave a speech to the American Economic Association, it harkens back to Joseph Schumpeter's acclaimed speech of another time and place uh, uh, in the 1940s. Is it, as Schumpeter faced in his speech, a zero-sum society? Forget about the politics and the emotion of neo-fascism. Is it neo-mercantilism that we fall back to like what we saw in the 30s? Right. Well, so the, the 30s, that's another source of the Great Depression. It was, it, it was uh, trade wars. Uh, and so people tried to solve their depression problem the same way Trump is proposing solving it. It's not, it's not an inspirational story. So ultimately, it goes back to Adam Smith. Our prosperity is generated by trade, by people doing what they do best, and uh, market forces determining who is doing the best. Uh, now, Trump wants to interfere with market forces. Now, he may have a, a, a legitimate argument for doing that because some people weren't insured against risks to their careers, and now they, they kind of thought they had a right to some protection mm -hmm. from the government, so maybe they are owed that. But it does come at a cost of economic efficiency. Bob Schiller, let me ask you, you just finished your tenure as the head of the American Economic Association. You mentioned uh, the speech that you delivered at the meeting in Chicago on Narrative Economics. I put that out uh, on Twitter. I want to ask you about inclusivity in economics. I imagine that's something that you've had to wrestle with here over the last couple of years. It seems like something that's talked about more and more at conferences like the one you're attending now uh, in Davos. What progress have we made on making economics more inclusive? Are you referring to women in economics? Women in economics, uh, yes, exactly. Minorities expanding the field. Well, there has been progress, uh, but it is still uh, a ways to go. Uh, I don't know what to say. That uh, Economics has been traditionally a male uh, field. I don't know why. Claudia Golden, who is a professor of economics at Harvard, did a study of uh, women's reaction to economics and concluded that women uh, ha react more strongly to the poor grade they get in their intro econ course and uh, <laughs> they're perfectionists. Whereas men, <laughs> they don't care. <laughs> uh, so women have to understand, or I shouldn't put it like that, but the, uh, I think they are increasingly accepting the importance of the field. Uh, it, it's actually a very good field to go into, I think, for uh, even if you don't become an economist. 
You know, it's interesting, David. I'm so glad you brought this up. I've never seen Bob Schiller squirm so much <laughs> in my life trying to get uh, out of this. I look at Amanda Kowalski or Naomi Lamoureux at Yale University Economics, and I, I love your idea that women get more upset at that Econ 101 exam, which, full disclosure, I'm, I'm really against the way freshman year economics is taught in yeah. America. I think it's a disservice to any and all involved, particularly the teachers, frankly. But but within this is the idea, even if we're not math-centric, even if we're not Michael Woodward, you got to know some math to do right. economics and right. to understand the dynamics. To our listeners, Professor Schiller, struggling with mathematics at home for younger children, what's the formula? How do you get kids engaged to get to the dynamics of Euclidean geometry, the dynamics of algebra, let alone get on maybe to a a passable understanding of differential equations? How do you put that love in kids? Well, I guess I succeeded. My kids liked math. My son was a math major in college. Uh Uh, What what did I do? I don't know. Uh, I think it has a certain lore to it, a certain narrative. When I was a kid, I read uh, Mathematics and the Imagination. Yes. That's the same book that Google founders uh, must have mm-hmm. read because they took the word Google from that book as a very big number. So I don't know. I think that there's a yeah. – uh, not everyone is going to be interested in math. but uh, Right. I'm going to editorialize here, David Girl. I want you to jump in with a professor. But to me, the basic idea is you've got to have permission to let your kids be nerds. Mm. And there's a whole societal construct in America that says you have to be nerd-free. There's a photograph of young Schiller, newly minted out of school, surrounded by Modigliani and a whole bunch of (laughs) other guys. And he is the nerd in the room, trust me. Proudly so. I was wearing a tie. I know that. You were wearing a tie. Nobody else was. Nobody. They show up at this summer conference, and everybody's as cash as hipsters can be in the 60s. And there's Schiller sitting bold upright with a tie on. David? (laughs) Bob Schiller, let me bring it back uh, to Don. Of us in the limited time that, that we have left, uh, we mentioned the speech by uh, the Chinese president yesterday. Vice President Biden speaking in Davos uh, this morning, uh, right. delivering a really impassioned speech about the transatlantic relationship and the future of Europe uh, on why, in his words, it's imperative that uh, we act urgently to defend the liberal international uh, order. Who's going to take up that mantle uh, here in the new term? Uh, are we going to see who's going to be fighting for that, the, the liberal international order, and how difficult is that fight going to be? Uh, by the way, I, I saw Biden's speech and I liked it. Um, I didn't find much to disagree with. Uh, We could have had a President Biden. (laughs) That was once talked about. But I guess he won't be the person. Uh, I think a lot of people in America, though, are are realizing the importance of civil society Mm. uh, and that we have to help reaffirm American civil society, which means that we don't rely on the president to form our view. We have our own we have our own society, and the president is our servant in this civil society. Bob Schiller, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been absolutely great fan- pleasure. Yeah, fantastic. I have no idea where America and our good society is in six months. The uncertainty here is palpable, uh, but your voice, all the criticism we get when you're on the right, the left, they go back and forth on Schiller. Thank you for your exuberance uh, here at our meetings, Robert Schiller of Yale uh, University. David Gura in New York, Tom Keen in Davos, Switzerland, there for the World Economic Forum's annual meeting. And Tom, I know you're there with a, a special guest. I'll let you bring him in. 
Very special guest. David Lipton had large shoes to fill. Some would say it was John Lipsky and, of course, his tenure uh, and leadership at the International Monetary Fund. Dr. Lipton uh, is the first deputy managing director of the IMF. People say, well, what is that? And it's a most interesting and important job as the IMF tries to adapt and adjust to the international economic system. Dr. Lipton is out of uh, Wesleyan and Harvard and, most importantly and germane to the moment, was part of one of the most important moments in economics I've ever seen, and that was Jeff Sachs getting off the plane from Russia a million years ago as Russia was thrown into turmoil. You served and worked with uh, Jeffrey Sachs in Russia a long, long time ago. Within your new assessment, how is Russian economic growth? And when we see Mr. Putin and the back and forth with Mr. Trump, Frame for us the Russian economy that the IMF sees. Sure. First, it's a pleasure to be with you. Um, I was just in Moscow last uh, week at the Gaidar Forum, uh, named after the uh, reformer who we were working with at the time. Russia's had a terribly tough decade with the global financial crisis, then the oil price decline and the sanctions. And during that period where the country might have fallen into chaos again, much as it had experienced uh, at the breakup of the Soviet Union, they actually managed policy extremely well. The central bank uh, kept inflation under control. The uh, uh, finance ministry kept the budget from exploding despite the incredible loss of revenue. So they they get a lot of credit for avoiding uh, instability that would have turned uh, a tough decade into a real debacle. But their problem is that now, with the recession ending, uh, they're headed for growth, but it's really slow growth. It's, you know, going to be just a little bit this year, and we think, right. you know, maybe one and a half percent over the medium term. That's just not enough it does, to raise it's not living enough to get standards. It done. Yeah, Sachs and Lipton observed historic change in Russia. What will be the new Russia with Mr. Putin? And I know you can't speak on American policy, but as a representative of the IMF, what does the new oil at a lower price Russia look like? Oil is no longer a big enough deal in Russia to drive the economy to higher living standards. Total oil production... Mm -hmm in Russia before the price decline right. was $2,000 a person. You, you know, they, they can't have twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 living standards with that. So right. they have, if they, if they have a future, it's going to be yeah. to build uh, an, a private economy uh, that can take advantage of all of the new technologies, can be modern, can be diversified. They're working on it, right. but they have a long way to and, go. And I want to frame this, folks. As, uh, Dr. Lipton is one of our great experts on Russia. David Gura, he had a bigger entourage than Lagarde. Yeah. I mean, his entourage, <laughs> they're all shaking their heads going, wait, this isn't an interview on Russia. We're doing the IMF. So, David, save me from my Russia fixation. I know we're going to come back here with David Lipton. I certainly want to ask about the future of multilateral institutions like the, like the International Monetary Fund, given what we've seen here in the U.S. And, and around the world. We'll get to that. David Lipton with us. He's the first managing director of the International National Monetary Fund. I want my colleague David Gurr to jump in here, but I believe I saw a lift in Maurice Obsfeld's latest adjustments to the IMF view. Is it a global lift to the economic system? Now, what we've uh, said for the global economy is that for the first time in quite a few years, we're not revising down our forecast. Our forecast says that growth in the uh, global economy is going to be picking up. It was 3.1 last year. 
we're looking at 3.4 this year, 3.6 next year. What has changed is that we're seeing somewhat uh, more rapid growth in the United States, and that's partly because uh, the United States has been strengthening, but also because we're presuming uh, that uh, the budgetary policies of the incoming Trump administration will be supportive of the economy with some tax cuts, some spending increases, and some uh, efforts to boost infrastructure. David Lipton, given what we've seen here over the last 18 months, say, uh, does the IMF have to change the way it makes the case for multilateralism? Does the IMF, in concert with other uh, multilateral institutions, have to change the way it's making that case? I think that's pretty important. You know, I think we've been on this, uh, this, on this case for... Uh, a year, a year and a half, it's clear that there's rising discontent with the globalization of trade and with migration. Uh, some of it comes from the fact that there are winners and losers in trade uh, and with migration. Some of it comes, I think, from the difficulty people have of, they know that something's uh, uh, hurting them, but it's very hard to sort out whether it's the aftermath of the global financial crisis and the sluggishness in the economy that resulted, whether it's technological change that's replacing people with uh, uh, machinery, or whether it's globalization. I think we need to do two things. We need to try to help diagnose what's really going on. Mm. Uh, it's important, for example, uh, if, if uh, really most of the problem comes from technological change, interfering with the globalization of trade is clearly not an answer. How much of the but problem... Secondly, Go ahead, I think yeah, please. The, the other point uh, that I wanted to make is uh, that we need to help countries uh, find ways mm. to deal with those who are adversely affected. We need to stress both uh, global growth and dealing with the negative side effects of interconnectedness and efforts to boost growth. How much of the, the problem here is definitional? A few weeks ago, we had uh, your colleague, Christine Lagarde, at Bloomberg, and she spoke about the threat of deglobalization. We hear a lot about uh, the prospects for deglobalization, post-globalization. Do people not understand, have trouble understanding what globalization is? And could institutions like yours do a better job of explaining yeah. that? I think that's a fair point. Um, globalization is changing. Uh, you know, we've we've seen a huge rise in what fraction of a country's output is dedicated to trade. It's That's doubled in the course of my professional lifetime. But interconnectedness has really changed because of the creation of global supply chains where, uh, you know, uh, some part may be made in Mexico, come back to the United States, get improved, get shipped back to Mexico. It can go back and forth several times where much of what's produced by Germany may have started, emanated in a supply chain in Poland or elsewhere in Central Europe. I think the interconnectedness that we see now is so deep, it's unlikely really to be unwound. The question is whether people, whether we can uh, find ways to take care of people who are hurt when economic change is uh, disruptive and try to protect the uh, beneficial parts of globalization, this interconnectedness has really helped a lot of people uh, achieve higher living standards. I've had a, the great fortune of speaking with uh, Jack Lew, the outgoing Treasury Secretary, a couple of times now, and, and he always talked about a three-pronged approach uh, about fiscal policy, monetary policy, and structural reforms. Which of those is, is the hardest sell? Is it structural reforms, and how do you, how do you make that case uh, to countries? How do you make that That's case to people question. that this is important? You know, I'll give you a funny answer, which is that uh, Ideologically, it's hardest to get people to agree to some sort of budget stimulus because there's a lot of ideological objection to that. Uh, everyone agrees structural reform is good. 
but uh, it doesn't happen not because there are ideological objections, but because it's politically so complex. You know, we feel that uh, with growth still sluggish after so many years after the global financial crisis, you just don't have the luxury mm. of picking and choosing. People, countries should be trying to find each and every uh, lever that can be used to be supportive. Uh, demand support may help short run. Uh, infrastructure will help uh, medium and long run. Structural change will help uh, over, mm. the, over the longer run. I mean, uh, we just don't have the luxury of choosing. I don't want to get you in trouble in the claimed Lagarde timeout chair, but I'm going to ask anyways. The other day, Mr. Trump talked about we need a weak dollar, and everybody in the racket killed over because what you're supposed to say is we want a strong dollar and a strong dollar policy. I know we're not near a Plaza Accord dynamic or a Rubin dollar of the late 90s into 2002, but where are we with the U.S. dollar is she started to things exorbitant privilege. Where, where are we within the dollar is the dominant feature of how we measure all. Our view at the IMF has been that the world works best when exchange rates are determined by market forces and stay in line with fundamentals. And, you know, we've seen some increase in the value of the dollar. To the extent that that is validated by... Uh, policies that strengthen America's fundamentals, it's not a problem for America. It's not a problem for the world. Mm -hmm. uh, if the U.S. is, uh, you know, uh, uh, demanding more, uh, it makes sense that the dollar is, uh, is somewhat, somewhat stronger. But uh, I think it is important that countries around the world maintain exchange rate flexibility. You'll know, re recall the problem that arose in the Asian financial crisis setting, mm. where countries were pegged to the dollar, and while a, dollar, a strong dollar was good for America, it yeah. wasn't good for Thailand. I should point out you were on the watch there in Washington uh, at the time. Are we near a mercantilism when we hear all the rhetoric and the heat? Is it a zero-sum America, and are you going to have a, you know, when you're blue book in April, are you going to have a little box down there on neo-mercantilism? Is that what the PhDs at the IMF are thinking about right now? I do think we need to separate two subjects, and I hope these can be separated uh, as the administration uh, begins. Uh, the United, the, you know, hearing here at Davos some of the businessmen who are um, close to the incoming administration and who in some measure say they speak for it, they say that America set up the rules of the game, played by the rules, other countries took advantage. The playing field has not been level. It needs to be leveled uh, again. And that, that's, that's one aspect, one, clearly one aspect of what uh, the incoming administration uh, aims to address. That is a very different subject from the question of whether there should be continued close uh, trade ties, uh, whether uh, the interconnectedness uh, should continue. Uh, surely, when half of the world is emerging market and developing countries, and those countries are providing 80% right. of the growth in the global economy, those are America's export markets. Mm. And when they're large, when, if they get larger, they are larger export markets. And if they don't grow as much, they're not so good. Yeah. So I'm hoping that the administration can distinguish, as it develops its policy, between an effort to try to uh, deal with what they view as uh, 
uh, undesirable or abusive policies and separate that from the question of interconnectedness and globalization. David Lipton, thank you so much. Look forward to seeing you at the spring meetings of the International Monetary Fund. Uh, Mr. Lipton is the first deputy managing director at the IMF. David Gurr in New York, I'm Tom Keenan Davos. And now uh, a moment with John Stasinski of Morgan Stanley HSBC and, of course, his uh, work uh, with Blackstone. But far more than that, his perspective in migrating uh, often between New York and London and across Europe, his service in philanthropy has been noted uh, by those in America, by the Queen in England, and, of course, his service to his Catholic Church as well uh, with the Pope in Rome. John, you are the most qualified person to speak on the scope and scale of what we are hearing too often in the recent weeks, which is not direct affronts, but an allusion to a 1920s industrial policy of Italy and even a selected group of our interviewees speaking of a fascism light, a neo-fascism. Frame for us this polarized moment that we're in around those fiery words of another time and place. Well, I think you're making a very important um, reference to history. Um, and, And clearly, in the context of the world order today, or perhaps the world disorder today, as some people might like to say, we have the a new set of powerful personalities who have really evolved quite formidably in the last 15 months. Um, you've got Abe, Xi, and Modi, and Duterte in Asia. You've mm-hmm. got General Nisi and Erdogan and Putin in Russia and the Mideast, and you now have Donald Trump, all of whom are very much strong personalities, strong leaders, responding to domestic uh, populist um, sentiment and nationalism, similar to what you reference with um, these other characters in the 20s and 30s in Europe. But I think it's also important to say there's a new geopolitical order, what I call power, a more powerful set of players that have evolved or will evolve following the inauguration of President Trump in the world stage over the next um, the next uh, couple of years. And you've seen the beginnings of that with obviously the theater uh, and the statement of President Xi here at Davos opening the forum and giving what I thought was a very thorough speech, 60-minute speech on globalization that candidly could have been given by President Obama. Speaking of, of theater, are you worried that there isn't enough room on that world stage for so many uh, powerful personalities, as you say? I think if we had all the personalities that I've cited on the stage at once, um, we would probably have to go to Yankee Stadium or something. <laughs> um, I think what's the most important How thing... How can we have a guy from Bowdoin talk about Yankee Stadium? They would all go to Fenway Park. There you go. There you go. I love Fenway Park. Thank and you. the Boston Red Sox are still alive and well. So we, we continue to support them. Continue. But remember, we have the New England Patriots, and they're doing extremely well. Lest we forget. Exactly. Forget. <laughs> exactly. Um, 
But I think one of the things we noticed here in Davos, and it's just, I was just just came out of a meeting with uh, Ursula von der Leyen, uh, who's the defense minister in Germany, and I had lunch listening to uh, Queen Rania talking about the refugees from Syria in Jordan. Davos gives you the chance to meet people one-on-one. -on -one. It gets to deal with the human dynamic. And I think as long as this group of very powerful personalities takes the time to meet one-on-one -on -one and understands each other mm. and listens. You know, Klaus Schwab is telling us about responsible and responsive leadership. I think a good part of leadership today is not just being on broadcast, um, but actually being on listening mode. And good leaders, uh, I learned early on in my career at Morgan Stanley, 90% of what you need to know to be a good leader and a good advisor, you'll figure out by keeping your mouth shut and listening, mm. Tom. And I think we're in a mode now where leadership is going to require right. a lot of listening. See how he said that, David? He said, Tom, shut up. David, ask the next question, please. <laughs> I didn't say Tom, shut No, no. I think, I think there's a, some projection here. <laughs> Jump David. in there, David. John, I don't want to make you the, the, the spokesperson for, uh, for Klaus Schwab, but I, I, I am curious here. There, there has been so much criticism of Davos this year in particular, uh, this gathering that some have said is, is out of touch with, with the, 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 the feeling in the world, the populist sentiment that we're seeing around the world. Help us bridge that gap then. Uh, what, what could the rest of the world learn from Davos? You mentioned the robustness of the conversation, the opportunity to talk with people about issues, engage with them on issues of, of real importance. Are there themes here that you think are easily translatable? Well, you're making a very important point, and I think it's important to make the distinction. We've sat in meetings today and yesterday where people said no one foresaw um, Brexit, no one foresaw the Trump victory, no one foresaw the rise of populism 12 months ago at Davos. And I think um, it stems from the fact that there are a couple of things going on here. One, this is the 1% of the 1% of the 1% talking to itself. Um, there's no one represented among the 99%. Number two, Klaus has created this great youth leaders, young global leaders group, and I think we need to see more of them. They're very bright young people, but if you look at the power of the internet today and the power of social media, mm -hmm. these people are creating their own fantasy worlds on social media, and then they're the ones who lose hope and are disappointed when they, they're not employed and there's a high degree of youth unemployment, there's a high degree of frustration with a lack of spirituality in the world. More people are, in fact, finding God. So there's a lot of things going on. So having more youth in the room here in Davos, I think would make uh, a big difference. I'm greatly honored to ask you this question. There is without question no one, no one that appears on Bloomberg Surveillance who puts money where the mouth is and feeds the homeless. What have you learned and how do we feed those so disadvantaged that they are desperate for the next meal? What is the tactical or logistical reality of feeding the homeless? Well, you know, it's interesting. It, uh, Tom, it's a very good question, and bravo to you for asking it because it's not asked enough. Because what you're really asking is, what is it that feeds um, human dignity? Uh, and the core of self-esteem. And actually what's happened a lot, you heard Joe Biden's speech earlier today mm -hmm. where he used the term human dignity, which really comes from his strong Catholic upbringing. Um, and I was really proud of the fact that there's a man who's not afraid to be very comfortable 
in his Catholic skin. So mm-hmm. to, to your point about you've got to be very focused on the human condition and making sure it's like we were talking about the Syrian refugees today. They're very proud. These refugees don't like taking handouts of food and accommodation. They're right. just trying to survive. But part of feeding the homeless is right. you've got to be oh. prepared to give yourself not just time and money, but you've got to be prepared to listen. Okay, we're going to have to leave it there. John Statinsky, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.